Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today, we're going to discuss Stephen King's first collection of short stories, Night Shift. Published in 1978, the collection contains 20 short stories, 16 of which had already been published in magazines. Of these 10 stories, 10 of them were later adapted into theatrical films or television events. Children of the Corn received seven sequels and a remake. Sometimes They Came Back received two sequels. The Lawnmower Man and The Mangler received a sequel each, and Trucks, under the awesomely 80s title Maximum Overdrive, had the distinction of being the first movie Stephen King ever directed and was later remade with its original name. So by this point of publication, Stephen King had already made a name for himself. Two years earlier, Carrie was released in theaters, with Salem's Lot and The Shining soon on their way. Night Shift represented a goldmine for prospective studio executives eager to get a piece of this hot new writer. The structure of this episode is is going to sound uh, just a little different than the regular Stephen King cast. You know, typically I, I would go into detail about each character, um, then analyze the big story beats. Uh, but, you know, because it's a collection of short stories, I'm going to select um, and discuss what I, I believe the strongest entries are. And... Uh, I, I'm just actually going to take a, a moment and just thank everyone for listening, uh, everyone on Instagram that has been following. Um, I just, I really appreciate the the listens and the support. You know, feel free to send me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com or, uh, you know, you can definitely, you know, find me on Facebook, uh, Stephen Kingcast and, you know, like it, share it um, and engage with this podcast because I, I want to be able to start reading some emails, you know, on the air to, to engage in a discourse. Um, and actually at the time of this, uh, this review last night, uh, the rumor mill started spreading out on internet land that Matthew McConaughey was tapped for the, the role of Randall Flagg in the stand, uh, movie, which it's not a casting decision I ever thought of. Um, but I, it's one of those things like that is the, that's the perfect casting and it needs to happen now. I, I was... I wasn't sure how I felt about a stand movie. As far as I know, it's a standalone movie. Um, and I just don't think that they can cram everything into one movie. I'm fine for, for changing you know, a story to, to fit the needs of the medium that uh, it's being adapted into. Um, you know, so I mean, if it's if it's two movies or or if they just rework it, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a director, and I leave that to the professionals. Um, but this, I mean, Matthew McConaughey as Randall Flagg would be out of control. You know, his uh, his his charisma is exactly what someone um, would need to have in order to to play Randall Flagg. He'd be able to lure you in with a smile and that charm, and then turn on you on a dime. And I can see. Matthew McConaughey, you know, being able to just go dead behind the eyes, you know, which darkle intent with with insanity. It, it's it's the perfect casting, and as I'll get to in my um, review of the stand when um, when we get to the point where the uh, unabridged edition is uh, is released, when Stephen King's books were coming out, I mean, think of it this way: you had Carrie came out, they made a movie about Carrie. Salem's Lot came out, they made a movie about Salem's Lot. Shining came out, they made a movie about The Shining. Uh, Night Shift came out, 
as I just read, a ton of stories were adapted. Um, and then The Stand came out. No movie. Dead Zone came out. A movie was adapted. Firestarter came out. A uh, movie was adapted. Cujo came out. movie was adapted. So everything that he's published had been turned into a movie at that time, except for The Stand. So there is an alternate world right now where The Stand was made in the, the late 70s or early 80s, um, and it helped... You know, in that universe, you know, there are famous quotes, there's iconic scenes, uh, you know, there are actors that whose careers were made, uh, and there's someone that played Randall Flagg out there whose performance, I'm sure, is just as iconic as Jack Torrance's, as Kathy Bates, as uh, Sissy Spacek. Um, and, and, and this character would, of Randall Flagg would, would serve as he is to all of the Stephen King fans, the number one Stephen King villain. And it's just sad that in our, in, in our universe where that movie was never made, and I understand there was a 1994 television movie, um, but I just feel like at the time it was a, a glaring, um, omission in the entries of Stephen King. And, uh, you know, when online, if you do a search of, you know, Stephen King monsters or Stephen King villains, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, fan art out there of, you know, Cujo and Christine and, like I said, Carrie and Jack Torrance and uh, Annie Wilkins uh, and Pennywise, the dancing clown, of course. Um, but I, I just think that if you're going to line them all up, there's one character that stands at the front, and that's Randall Flagg, because Randall is is a character that just... He really sunk his uh, his claws into Stephen King's brain, I think, because he he pops up in multiple uh, of Stephen King's works, um, and he comes to life off of the page more so um, than almost any other of his characters. And when Stan when the Stand was first released, I mean, uh, Randall just comes barreling out of the gate. So anyway. If Matthew McConaughey plays Randall Flagg, that's inspired casting. And for anyone that has seen True Detective, it's it's clear that he'll be able to do it. He can go to dark places. Um, and w with all of the the buzz surrounding Matthew McConaughey right now, it would it would definitely give uh, the stand a lot of momentum as it's made. So I'm all for it. I don't know where to vote. I don't know where to sign up. But uh, Matthew McConaughey for Randall Flagg. Someone lead that charge. Make sure that it happens. So, um, I, going back to Night Shift, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I, I had a hard time reading these stories. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole point of the Stephen King cast is for me to read a story and then, you know, review it in the chronological order of, of publication. And then if there's a movie adaptation, I will read the, the, the movie, or I'll, I'll reread, or review the, the movie adaptation and then move on to the next book in the chronological order of, of publication. And so, after um, The Shining, I sat down and I said, okay, I'm going to start reading these these stories. And I, I, my interest wasn't held and I moved on, you know, and I went on and I reviewed a couple of the movies and I've recorded, you know, more podcasts. I, I've read, um, at this point, I've read uh, Firestarter, I've read Cujo, I've read uh, The Dead Zone since then. I sh and I should be, re you know, reviewing this in order. So this review is coming after I've reviewed the other ones. Um, but I, I just couldn't get invested in them. 
you know, and it, it wasn't because I, I had, you know, read them so often and was bored. I mean, in the case of most of them, I, I'd only read them once before, you know, and when I was reading Salem's Lot, I, I couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road, you know, two stories that serve as bookends that hold up King's second novel. Yet when the time came I and I settled down to read Jerusalem's Lot, I just couldn't engage. Now, I, I wound up going back. I, I put it down for a while, and I, I really, really started enjoying it. But I don't know. You know, I don't know why I couldn't get into it um, the first time around. I think maybe when I first started you know, rereading this, it's because I knew that these stories had been written prior to Carrie in the novels that we've reviewed so far. Or maybe I just wasn't in the mood. I don't know. But, um, you know, just even the, the, this morning I sat down and I, and I read some more. Um, and, and I was just more thoroughly thrilled with it than when I first sat down. Um, but regardless of my, you know, um, waning interest with some of them and my more engagement with, with others, there is one chunk of the text that I found incredibly thrilling. And to have it didn't have anything to do with vampires, boogeymen, mutant rats, alien eyeballs, or haunted machinery. Uh, it was Stephen King's foreword to the collection. So what struck me is that this is the first time King steps into his books as a voice to speak to us. It's the first time he begins his dialogue with us, who he will later refer to as Constant Reader. This is the first time he adopts his Uncle Stephen persona, a friendly fireside storyteller who will thrill us, make us laugh, and scare us. Here he's playing up the ladder, coming off the heels of Carrie Salem's Lot in The Shining. In fact, the introduction... Let's talk, you and I. Let's talk about fear. And the subsequent description of the cold winter rain falling on his empty house feels less like an introduction by an author and more like an introduction you'd find from the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt comics that King grew up with. And that's an important uh, note because nowadays pop culture references and inspirations are a large part of storytelling narratives. But back when Stephen King premiered, it wasn't as part of the culture to the extent that it is now. Because King grew up reading old EC and Marvel comics, it should come as no surprise that he introduces the collection of short stories like, just as I stated, the Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper, the Old Witch, or even Stan Lee himself, whose term for his fan, True Believer, is what Stephen King calls Constant Reader. So with the introduction underway, King uses repetition, writing and rewriting variations of Let's Talk, Let's Talk of Fear to weave a spell around us, almost like a snake charmer. He then begins a treatise... Um, on the importance of the horror genre, placing it into historical context, ranging from Beowulf, touching upon Poe and Tolkien, and this shows a great deal of humility by not spotlighting himself at all, and I wouldn't have blamed him, he was uh, the hot new guy on the block, um, but in fact he, he argues that the horror genre speaks to the human condition, not specific to any one writer or reader. His argument is that we embrace this type of fiction because of the therapeutic qualities, a way to cope with fear, and that which we can't either understand or, or generally like to avoid, um, like death. Fear has always been big, King writes. Death has always been big. These are two of the human constants. But only the writer of horror and the supernatural gives the reader such an opportunity for total identification and catharsis. Furthermore, without using that word, he speaks of zeitgeist, explaining how particular stories emerge from this type of fiction as a result of the collective unconscious of our society at that particular time as a way to deal with the societal issues plaguing us at that moment. He describes the fear of the teenage youth in the 1950s and the popular horror movies that spawned from the collective fear. And this continues to this day. I mean, 
uh, just look no further than the, the, the years following 9-11. You know, we saw movies about torture, like Saw and Hostel. You know, those were all the rage. Now, why is that? Might it have something to do with the feeling of complete helplessness that we felt following those attacks? I think so. Um, you know, I, I don't quite get how a society works um, and, and how the thought process, you know, molds across a collective unconscious, but I find it fascinating. And Stephen King is later going to return to this concept um, in Lisey's story much later on in his career, and he is going to actually take this concept and turn it literal, that there is a, an existence, a large pool from which creative types draw from. So it's, it's not, um, uh, not just a coincidence that certain things are being published or created very similarly at the same time. It's because all of these creative types are going and drawing from the exact same pool. And I think that comic book writer author of, you know, Watchmen and V for Vendetta, um, Alan Moore, I think that he believes in this as well, that there is a, 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 a source of energy that the creative types draw from, um, which is interesting, and I would love for that to be true. Um, is it? I don't know. I can't say. There's only so much that, that my, my brain is, is meant to comprehend. Um, but King writes, fear makes us blind. And we touch each fear with all the avid curiosity of a self-interest trying to make a whole out of a hundred parts like the blind men with their elephant. We sense the shape. Children grasp it easily, forget it, and relearn it as adults. The shape is there, and most of us come to realize what it is sooner or later. It is the shape of a body under a sheet. All of our fears add up to one great fear. All of our fears are a part of that great fear, an arm, a leg, a finger, an ear. We're afraid of the body under the sheet. It's our body. And the great appeal of horror fiction through the ages is that it serves as a rehearsal for our own deaths. It's morbid, but at the same time, it makes total sense that um, it's just, it's it's therapeutic. It, 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 it takes something that is not entertaining at all and it, it dresses it up. Um, and, you know, when I go about my day, I don't really like to think about death. I don't like to think about mortality. I don't like to think about these things. I like to just enjoy the moment. I like to enjoy now. I like to, you know, spend time with the people that I'm closest with and, you know, pursue my, my interests and just, uh, you know, enjoy life. And so if I was given the choice to, you know, uh, you know think about, um, you know, darker thoughts or not even that they're dark. I mean, they're, they're part of nature, but you know, less pleasant, I, I should say, you know, I would choose not to. But with, you know, these types of stories, um, yeah, I, I guess it prepares you, it makes you think while at the same time, you know, entertaining you. So I, I just, of all of the stories in this collection, I believe that the foreword by Stephen King is, is the most important text in this collection, because it's Stephen King starting to be the Stephen King that we know, the Stephen King that will speak to us, the Stephen King who is putting his philosophy out there. And I think that he's, he's later going to take this and expand upon it um, with his nonfiction, Dance Macabre. Uh, so from this point forward, I, I'm just going to get into some, some reviews uh, about some of the um, uh, stories here. I'm not going to review each of the stories, um, but just a handful of ones that I think... Um, you know, are the strongest entries or the most notable entries, and uh, then afterwards, you know, I'll give some notable mentions 
Um, you know, I'll, I'll discuss some Keevan, Stephen Kingisms that I find, and make sure that you stick around for next week as I review uh, probably the most famous um, adaptation from these stories, the uh, the Children of the Corn. Uh, so the first uh, that that we'll talk about is the the opening entry from the the collection after the the forward, and that's that's Jerusalem's Lot. So as everyone knows by this point, hopefully, if if you are completely new to Stephen King, then um, Stephen King's first novel was Carrie. His second novel was um, a story called Salem's Lot, which is just the nickname for the the town known as Jerusalem's Lot. So what he does here. Uh, Stephen King, although this, I believe this was written before Salem's Lot, uh, Stephen King gives some backstory to, uh, to that particular town. Now, there's a couple ways of looking at it, that this story does, in fact, uh, take place in the same universe as Salem's Lot. So, during the events of, of the King's second novel, we should know that this is the backstory that there was this large worm underneath the ground um, and and there had been a uh, a town that had once been there and then it all disappeared and so that's the backstory or it takes place in in another uh, universe with its own um, set of rules and and maybe you know th- there was never a, a town that was rebuilt on top of that maybe Ben Mears never came to town so regardless um, Stephen King does re- revisit the concept of this particular town. So from uh, from Wikipedia, I'm going to read the, the the Wikipedia summary and then get into the um, just some Kingisms and, and just talk about it a little bit. So from Wikipedia, Charles Boone, in a series of letters addressed to an acquaintance nicknamed Bones, describes the arrival of himself and his manservant, Calvin McCann, at Chapelwaite, the neglected ancestral home of Charles's estranged late cousin Stephen. While running errands, Calvin finds that many people in the nearby town of Preacher's Corners think them mad living in the mansion. The house is said to be a bad house, with a history of sad events, disappearances, and mysterious noises, which Charles attributes to as rats in the walls. Not long after their arrival, Calvin finds a hidden compartment in the library, it contains an old map of a nearby deserted village called Jerusalem's Lot, a mysterious area that the townsfolk avoid. Their curiosity piqued, Charles and Calvin set out to explore the village the next day. The two men find a quaint yet severely decayed Puritan settlement. The village, in Charles's words, is sour. It is clear that no one has set foot in the town since its abandonment, no looters, collectors, children, nor animals. As Charles and Calvin explore a church described on the map, they discover an unspeakably obscene parody of the Madonna and Child, as well as an inverted cross. At the pulpit, they find a book filled with Latin and Druidic runes entitled De Vermis Mysterius, or The Mysteries of the Worm. When Charles touches the book, the church shakes, and the two men sense something gigantic moving in the ground beneath them. The evil of the place overcomes both men, and they quickly leave the town. Later, in Preacher's Corners, Charles becomes feared and cursed by all, to the point of being chased away from one house with rocks and guns. Charles turns to the chapel wait's former maid, who gives him information about its connection with Jerusalem's lot. She reveals that a long-standing rift in Charles's family was caused when his grandfather, Robert Boone, attempted to steal De Vermis Mysterious from his brother Philip, presumably to destroy it. 
She explains that Philip was a minister who was heavily involved in the occult. On October 31st, 1789, Philip vanished along with the entire populace of Jerusalem's lot. Charles attempts to dismiss it all as superstition, but he is unable to forget what he saw in the church. Calvin discovers a diary in the library, encrypted with a rail fence cipher. Before he can translate it, Charles has him venture into the cellar to check for rats due to the continuing noise in the walls. Two days pass before Charles has recovered enough to describe what they had found hidden behind the walls, the ancient, undead corpses of two of his relatives, Marcella and Randolph Boone, whom Charles recognizes as Nosferatu. The two men flee the cellar, and Calvin immediately seals the trapdoor to prevent any pursuit from these creatures. As Charles recovers from the encounter, Calvin cracks the cipher. He is able to translate the diary, which contains a history of Jerusalem's lot and a record of the events leading up to its abandonment in 1789. It is revealed that the town was founded by one of Charles's distant ancestors, James Boone, who was the leader of a cult of witchcraft and inbreeding that had split from the Puritans. The journal explains how Philip and Robert Boone took up residence in Chapelwaite, how Philip was taken in by Boone's cult, and how he acquired the De Vermis Mysterious at Boone's behest. Philip descended into madness. Philip and Boone are said to have used the book to call forth a supernatural force referred to by Philip as the Worm. In his final entry, Robert curses the whippoorwill birds that have descended upon Chapelwaite. Charles feels compelled to return to Jerusalem's lot. Calvin does his best to prevent it, but he eventually gives in and accompanies his master to the village. Returning to the church, they discover a horribly butchered lamb on the altar, lying on top of the book. Charles moves the lamb and takes the book, intending to destroy it. But a congregation of evil undead entities begin to emerge, including James Boone and Charles's great-uncle Philip. Charles becomes possessed and begins to chant, summoning forth the worm with an ancient spell. Calvin knocks down Charles, which snaps him out of his possessed stupor. Charles then sets the book on fire. The gigantic worm lashes out from below, killing Calvin, but then disappears. Before Charles can recover Calvin's body, James Boone emerges from the worm's hole, forcing Charles to flee the church once more. In his final letter to Bones, Charles announces his intention to commit suicide, thereby ending the Boone family line and its connection to the evil of Jerusalem's lot. The book concludes with an editor's note that attributes Charles's letters, as well as the death of Calvin McCann, to insanity, dismissing his claims of supernatural occurrences in Jerusalem's lot. Finally, the editor notes that Charles was not, in fact, the last of his line, that a bastard relative still exists, the editor himself, James Robert Boone. He has moved to Chapelwaite, hoping to clear the family name, and notes that Charles was right about one thing. The place badly needs the services of an exterminator. There are some huge rats in the walls by the sound. The note is dated October 2nd, the same date as Charles's first letter. So this is very Lovecraftian. Uh, So if you don't know, H.P. Lovecraft was a horror author in the 1920s and 1930s who specialized in the weird, capital T, capital W. If I didn't know who wrote this, I would have assumed it was a Lovecraft tale. It's composed of letters, in this case from one colleague to the next. The writer brushes up against forces his mind is not meant to comprehend and is driven to madness, in this case suicide. Furthermore, it includes a giant monster to whom others pay worship, one that has a dark religion built around it. But what makes this an homage to Lovecraft is its similarity to the story The Rats in the Walls. 
which bears a striking resemblance to this story, a story in which a family moves into their ancestral estate, which has its own dark past, and rats in the walls, with the exception being they're not really rats. Um, now, rats, uh, you know, in, in the story, the rats in the walls, have their own civilization underneath the ground, not unlike the story, another story in this particular collection, Graveyard Shift. Now, not only does this um, Jerusalem's Lot uh, take place in the same town as King's second book, it also includes vampires referenced here as uh, Nosferatu. Um, it's a fun story. It's shrouded in mystery. It includes a haunted house, a deserted village, things in the walls that blubber and laugh, hidden maps, secret-coded diaries, omens, and a giant worm god living underneath the ground. When they follow the hidden map to the deserted village, it invokes another classic Stephen King story also found within this collection, Children of the Corn, and later on, um, Desperation. So we have uh, some Stephen Kingisms found here. Uh, we have the protagonist as writer, uh, which we have seen so far with Salem's Lot, The Shining, and we will see again in a number of books. Um, our second one is uh, Birds as Agents of the Afterworld. So in this story, we see that the Whippoorwills uh, have descended upon Chapelweight. This reminds me of the sparrows in the dark half, agents known as psychopomps, whose purpose is to shepherd a soul to the next world. In this case, in this case it seems as though the Whippoorwills are prepared to take Robert to the next life. Um, and then, maybe most notably, Stephen King uses a phrase that will later become its own kingism in, in the sense of, of the catchphrase, um, and that is a character stating the following, the ground is sour. Um, that phrase will be used again in, uh, in, in the classic story, Pet Cemetery. Uh, so the next uh, story that I'm going to get into um, is The Boogeyman. So according to the Wikipedia summary, the majority of the story occurs in the office of Dr. Harper, a psychiatrist, where a man named Lester Billings talks to the doctor about the murders of his three young children. Billings seems paranoid and possibly schizophrenic as he describes the circumstances of the death of his children. His first two children died mysteriously of apparently unrelated causes, diagnosed as crib death and convulsions respectively, when left alone in their bedrooms. The only commonalities were that the children cried boogeyman before being left alone, and the closet door was opened slightly after finding their corpses, even though Billings was certain it was shut. We are told that Billings' wife Rita became pregnant approximately a year after their second child's death, at which time the family was living in a different house far away from the location of the original deaths. Their first year in the new house was without incident, though Billings was still uneasy and let his son sleep in the master bedroom with him and his wife. In the second year, it became apparent that whatever had killed the first two children had managed to track down Billings and his family, lingering in the closets and slithering around the house at night. Not long after, Rita left to care for her mother who be, had become ill, and Billings and his son were left alone in the house. Feeling the malevolent presence growing bolder in his wife's absence, Billings panics and moves his son to a separate bedroom in the hopes that the thing haunting him will go for the weaker prey. That night, the child cries, Boogeyman, while being put to bed, and an hour later he, began, he begins to scream. Billings' love for his son briefly overcomes his terror, and he runs into his son's room to find an inhuman creature attacking the boy. Billings, broken by fear, flees to a local 24-hour diner. He returns home to find the boy on the floor with a broken neck and the closet door slightly open. Billings lies to the police, convincing them that the death must have been accidental from the boy trying to climb out of his crib. 
As Billings finishes the story and starts to leave, Harper recommends he make an appointment with the nurse for further discussion. When he gets to the lobby, the nurse is gone, and Billings returns to the psychiatrist's office, finding it empty as well, with the closet door just slightly open. Billings hears a voice from the closet as the door swings open, and he finds himself, finds himself face to face with the boogeyman as it casts off the disguise it had been wearing when it posed as Dr. Harper. So, King <laughs> creates a, a wholly unlikable protagonist with, uh, with Billings. He's a misogynist, he refuses to be wrong, even when he suspects that something is killing his children. Rather than die at the hands of an unseen force and have the children sleep in the bed for fear of growing up weak. You know, thankfully it's a short story, so we don't have to spend too much time with this character. However, regardless of how we feel about Billings, this character fits perfectly with the EC Comics tone established with King's Forward. Whether it's a conscious or unconscious decision, I could very easily see this playing out in either the pages of a comic book or on television in an episodic anthology like Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Dark Side. In fact, there are uh, shades of, of what we would later see in It. Um, found in the paperback edition, I would say on the bottom of uh, page uh, 101 and, and, and 103. You know, in fact, I would say that the boogeyman itself is the prototype for the creature in It. You know, so it, it, it's really not hard to imagine that the, the boogeyman is either related to the same interdimensional species of the entity found within It and, and Dandelo from the Dark Tower. Or it could just be a facet of the of the, the main character from It. But it's definitely clear that even earlier in his career, Stephen King was fascinated with the concept of the monster and the monster, you know, playing with us. Uh, now, you know, with that said, even though they do share some commonalities, shape-shifting, uh, you know, uh, preying on children, like I said, this is a prototype, and I think it, it's much more fully formed when he gets around to, to it. You know, I, so it's a fun story. It's a fun, well, no, no, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not a fun story uh, because it does deal with the, the death of, of, of children. But, you know, like I said, it's something that you can easily see in, in a little, uh, you know, comic book or like Tales from the, the Crypt. But there, there's something, and, I, and I, there's a twist at the end, but the twist itself to me just raises questions that I, I don't think are, are meant to be raised on the part of King. You know, Billings walks out. Oh, there's no nurse there. He goes back in, and then Harper isn't there. Then Harper comes out of the closet, but except it's not Harper. It's the boogeyman, and he's holding a Harper mask. So, so okay, so one way of looking at it is Harper was killed by the boogeyman, and then just replaced in that session, or or I don't know what the other option is. Are we just led to believe that the the boogeyman, uh, you know, went to uh, school for psychology for four years and and just cracked the books really hard just so he could play this prank one day on on Billings? Uh, does he? Ha I don't I don't know. I I that to me didn't really add up unless he has you know like uh, abilities to to shape the world around him which would mean that he could create a projection of a uh of you know the the secretary out in the the lobby uh i i i don't the logistics of this don't really seem to add up too much um but anyway that's i'm nit that's nitpicking something that should just kind of be you know a twist even though to me the twist I don't want to say that doesn't make sense. It makes sense. Like I said, I just don't think that it holds up. 
so there's a couple uh, kingisms here. You know, the one is that, you know, we, we see the, this creature that is very similar to the creature that we see in it. And the second one is, again, the one that makes me the most uncomfortable, and that's that's racism to remind us to not like a character, in this case, in this case Billings. You know, we, we see him, you know, saying some inappropriate things. And to me, it's unnecessary because by this point, the guy already is, you know, he's a misogynist. You know, he's, you know, this, this tough guy that doesn't want his children to be weak. I don't like him. I don't need him to be racist on top of it. It's just, to me, it's a little bit overkill. So um, I, I just, I very quickly want to talk about Battleground, which is a bonkers tale. I didn't expect to actually sit down and, and do a review on Battleground, but I thought it was very effective. It's fun. It again falls under what you would expect out of an EC-styled story. I can see this again, you know, as a comic book. I can see it, you know, on a, you know, if I was, a, you know, 12, 13 years old and, and watching uh, Tales from the Crypts at 11 o'clock at night on, on a Saturday. It's it's something that I can see. And it, it if, if you're thinking of, of these stories in those terms, it's so effective. Nice twist little ending. Uh, I wasn't aware that it was made into a uh, an episode for the Nightmares and Dreamscapes um, television event a few years back. I haven't seen it. But now having read it again, and, and I did not remember this story. But I really enjoyed it. It was just fun and ridiculous, just the concept of an assassin versus these these crazy toys, these killer toys. Uh, and there's a little bit of a king, kingism there with the, the concept of, you know, this curse which comes out of nowhere. Well, not nowhere, but we don't live in a world where curses tend to happen. But it definitely made me think of the Richard Bachman story, uh, Thinner, and I'm going to get to Thinner when I discuss the, the, the Bachman books. So you might have actually questioned why I'm not, if I was really doing the Stephen King cast in order in, in the, the chronological order of publication, I would have touched upon the Bachman books by now. And I'm not, because I was just waiting for the uh, each of the Bachman stories to be collected under the Stephen King title, the Bachman books. Another story I didn't really expect to actually sit down and review was Trucks because my remembrance of Trucks really is more the remembrance of Maximum Overdrive starring Emilio Estevez, brother of Charlie Sheen, and I and and starring the as the villain the Green Goblin. Uh, actually, the mask for the Green Goblin truck is better than any of the masks uh, for the Green Goblin that have appeared in the live-action Spider-Man movies. But that's neither here nor there. But I didn't remember the, the, the short story being so quick and to the point and, and just, you know, raises the questions of what is going on and it puts you right there in the moment. And I, I didn't think I was going to actually really enjoy it. And I did. I did enjoy it. So from Wikipedia... The story's narrator and a handful of strangers find themselves trapped together in a freeway truck stop diner after semi-trailers and other large vehicles are suddenly brought to independent life by an unknown force and proceed to gruesomely kill every human in sight. The six survivors hiding in the diner include the narrator, as well as an elderly black counterman, a trucker, a young man named Jerry, his girlfriend, and a salesman named Snodgrass. As the story begins, the counterman and the trucker attempt to radio any other survivors, but the two-way radio falls uh, falls short for unknown reasons. 
Snodgrass, cracking under the strain, attempts to flee across the stop's parking lot and is hit by a truck. Snodgrass gets propelled into a drainage ditch, taking hours to die from internal bleeding. The situation worsens when the diner's power goes out. The counterman instructs the survivors that they will need to consume the perishable meats and collect good, portable water from the restrooms. While the employees' restroom is inside the diner, the men's and ladies' room are by the outdoor gas station, and the narrators attempt to gather fresh water from those places nearly cost him his life when the trucks realize what he is trying to do. Sometime later, a note of hope appears when the trucks begin to run out of gas, and a few literally stand still from lack of fuel. An enormous semi-truck noses up to the diner and starts blasting its horn at erratic times. Jerry remembers from his time in the Boy Scouts that the horn blasts are Morse code and translates that, translates that the trucks are demanding humans start pumping the fuel to which the trucks assure they will not attack people who refuel them. The narrator is outvoted when he suggests they comply with this, and a bulldozer arrives and proceeds to attack the diner. The narrator and Jerry destroy the dozer with improvised Molotov cocktails, but the diner is half-destroyed, and Jerry and the trucker are killed. The remaining three humans surrender, and taking turns, start pumping the gas into the mile-long string of waiting trucks. When the narrator exhausts the fuel reserve of the truck's stop's gas station, a fuel tanker arrives to replenish the fuel cisterns. When the narrator is at a point of collapsing, he is relieved by the counterman, who starts pumping his gas for his shift. The narrator says that he will have to show the girl how to handle a fuel pump, and that she had better stop being so dainty. The narrator thinks to himself that perhaps this will last only until the trucks rust and fall apart, but he then has a grim vision of forced assembly lines churning out new generations of trucks, and the trucks doing great efforts such as draining the, the swamp and paving much of the wild backcountry, where much of the world, maybe even the oceans, will be flattened out and remade in its new master's image. The story ends as a pair of planes fly overhead, and the narrator laments, I wish I could believe there are people in them. So again, it's it's effective, it's quick to the point, it makes you ask questions, you know, why are the people trapped, why are they afraid, and then later, you know, why are these trucks outside? Wait a minute, th these trucks can move by themselves? How did this happen? And the fact that it doesn't answer it, you know, goes back to classic, you know, horror movies like The Birds and the original uh, Night of the Living Dead. We're never given the answers for the things that are occurring and we don't need the answers. All we need to know is that we have this one particular moment in time that we spend with these particular characters, and they don't know the answers. They're never going to know the answers. And that is the horror aspect of the story. Not the killer trucks, but being thrust suddenly into a world that you thought you knew, but completely know nothing about. So there's a, a few kingisms here. The first and foremost is that of the evil car. You know, they even, I mean, King even references a fury, you know? I mean, would that be a Plymouth fury? Is he creating the prototype he'll later use for Christine? You know, we'll see the late, you know, the evil car uh, in the novel Christine. We'll see it in From a Buick 8. We'll see it in uh, The Road Virus Heads North and Mr. Mercedes. Um, and we know that in our world, a car has such a negative impact upon Stephen King and, you know, if this was a Stephen King novel, you might think that, you know, these were his way of, of warning himself uh, somehow that these were omens all along. 
And another kingism is the, the idea of the disparate group trapped together. Uh, so we later see this in uh, a supermarket in the mist. Uh, we will see it with the, the survivors of the, the plane uh, in the Langoliers. So just a, a couple kingisms that, that we, we see for the first time here. Maybe not for the first time, but uh, definitely something that we're going to see again. And then we have Sometimes They Come Back. And again, this story is bonkers, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, my and I just remember being in a video store as a kid and seeing Sometimes They Come Back, Sometimes They Come Back Again, and you know, not not really paying much attention to it. I remember reading the story. I don't, I didn't, I, and I didn't really remember much about it. I didn't remember liking it one way or another. But again, keeping in mind that this reminds me so much of the EC comics, the twist ending fits perfectly in line. So from Wikipedia. In 1959, nine-year-old Jim Norman and his 12-year-old brother Wayne are off to the library to drop off Jim's books when they are attacked by a gang of local greasers. Wayne is stabbed to death by two of the greasers while Jim escapes. Now in 1974, Jim is married and has accepted a job as an English teacher at Stratford High School in Stratford, Connecticut. All seems to go well until after the Christmas holiday when Jim finds out one of his students is killed in a hit and run. When a new student arrives, Jim recognizes the boy as Robert Lawson, one of the greasers who killed his brother. Lawson appears to be the same age now as he was in 1958. Another student falls to her death a week later, and another of the greasers, David Garcia, joins Jim's class, also appearing to be the same age as he was in 1958. When a third student disappears, after expressing his concerns about the suspicious new arrivals to Jim, the third greaser, Vincent Vinnie Corey, is added to the group. Now terrified, Jim calls on an old acquaintance, a policeman who knew him and his brother named Donald Nell, for information on the greasers. It is soon revealed that the three boys died in a car accident soon after Wayne's murder. They were electrocuted when they crashed the car into a telephone pole. Not long after Jim finds this out, his wife Sally is killed by the greasers. Jim takes justice into his hands by calling forth a demon to defeat the dead greasers. Before the greasers can try and kill Jim, the demon arrives in the form of Jim's dead brother and proceeds to vanquish the greasers. However, the demon, still in the form of Wayne, warns, I'll come back, Jim, which leads Jim to realize that the demon he has just summoned may be more difficult to rid than the three greasers. So by beginning with the job interview, it's a great way to deliver exposition. It's quick and in service to the story being told. We learn everything we need to know about Jim Norman. He had a nervous breakdown, his wife was hit by a car, and he promised to his then-dying mother a career in teaching to honor the memory of his dead brother. And he leaves the interview, we learn he has secrets. Um, so it's just an effective way, right away, to establish, you know, some information that we need to know uh, in order to, to get the most out of the story. Stephen King doesn't have a lot of time to do it in, in other more organic ways, so this is a, a shortcut for us to just get a good dose of this information that feels, you know, still uh, organic. So good job, you know, Mr. King on that. So I want to point out the dream sequence which is actually a memory Jim has of the day his brother had died. Now, aspiring writers, take note of what King accomplishes here and how he does it. Set within the tunnel beneath an oncoming train, the scene escalates and escalates as the train approaches. The boy is getting more physical, Johnny wets himself, and then the train is there. Once it's there, the switchblades come out. 
By intertwining the threat of violence with the oncoming train, King provides a vehicle for the tension, an image that we can picture firmly in our minds. The scene is necessary for the climax of the story in which Jim summons the demon and recreates the oncoming train, which just creates um, just a nice sense of tension, uh, and it shows that he has now taken control of an uncontrollable situation, placing himself as a controller of the supernatural. So the short story itself is surreal. Reality is operating under a logic no one tries to understand. It's dream logic. Have you ever had a dream where two contradicting things occur at the same time? You were you, but not really? You're in your house, but it's actually a neighbor's house? Dream logic. Dead teenagers from your youth transferring schools through time and space to join your class? Dream logic. So Jim Norman is a proactive character, and he's rather brave. For someone who knows that the dead murderers of his youth have returned from the grave, the fact that he stands up to Vinny in the classroom is a testament to that bravery. Um... You know, and, and ultimately, I, I just, the, the concept of him all of a sudden just being in his classroom with this occult book and knowing how to summon forth the demon, that's that's why I, at the beginning I said that I was bonkers, because it goes from a story where he's just being pursued by, by ghosts pretty much to, I don't know, it just takes this next step. It gets this promotion that I think is just a, it's, it's a good, um, it's a good little twist ending. And although it's a short story, you know, we definitely have some, uh, some kingisms involved. So the first and foremost, I would say, is that of the evil greaser. You know, we first saw the evil greaser. Um, it, was, uh, it was Billy Nolan and Carrie, uh, and we'll see him again uh, uh, as, as Henry Bowers in It. And uh, on page 146, uh, Stephen King takes some time uh, to describe the 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 school and just the description itself and I, I apologize I have my notes I just don't have the book on me right now but uh, the 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 description itself just reminded me very much of the, of the Overlook Hotel a description you know the description would have fit the, the Overlook very well and then we have uh, you know if King isn't writing about writers he tends to be writing about school teachers uh, you know so we have um, Jim Norton here, you know, we had uh, Andy McGee in Firestarter, we had John Smith in The Dead Zone, and uh, then number four for Kingisms, we have the Wayne thing, okay, Wayne hyphen thing, so we're going to see this again, so basically what he does is he substitutes someone else's proper noun, um, and, and then you have your monster disguising as someone you know, so blank, hyphen thing. So we're definitely going to see that again, most notably in It. And lastly, uh, in terms of kingisms, we have the bully, as seen in Carrie, Salem's Lot, and again, in, in It. So the, the more I do these reviews, the more I, I it, it seems that all roads lead to It here, that these are all just rough drafts of the, of the classic that he's going to wind up writing. Um, and uh, when he writes that, you know, as we get to it, but as, what I remember it being is the end of a particular chapter of, of Stephen King's career. And uh, I, I can see why, because he, he will have given his definitive stance on all of these Kingisms that I've been referencing here. So keeping with the, these, like, these just crazy stories and with the, the dream logic that I, I just described in, uh, in Sometimes They Come Back, we have the lawnmower man. 
Now, when I mention The Lawnmower Man, you might think of the, the Jeff Fahey, uh, Pierce Brosnan movie, which involved the shop from Firestarter. This is not that story. I mean, that movie, Stephen King wanted his name taken off of it. This is a completely different story. What the hell is going on? It's crazy. It is a strange fever dream of a story. This is what Wikipedia has to say. It's summer, and Harold Parquette is in the need of a new lawnmower and a boy to help. The summer before, a neighbor's cat was accidentally killed when another neighbor's dog chased the feline under the mower. Harold has been putting off hiring new help for the summer, but when he sees an ad for a mowing service, he calls. A van reading pastoral greenery soon, pull, soon pulls up to Parquette's home. The man working for the service is shown the overgrowth back lawn, the overgrown back lawn, and is hired. Harold is enjoying a rest as he reads the paper when he hears the lawnmowers outside. Startled, he races to the back porch and sees the lawnmower running by itself, and the naked lawnmower man following it and eating the grass. Harold faints. Now, what the Wikipedia summary does not state is that not only is the naked lawnmower man following the lawnmower eating the grass, the naked lawnmower man is on all fours eating the grass. When Harold revives, the lawnmower man explains that his behavior grants substantial benefits and that he makes sacrificial victims of customers who can't appreciate the process. Parquet, although unnerved, allows the lawnmower man to return to work. As soon as the man is out of sight, Harold desperately calls the police but is interrupted by the lawnmower man. The lawnmower man briefly chases Harold with the lawnmower before brutally slaughtering him. It, I, 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 I don't, I don't remember this story, and I certainly don't remember it being so weird. It's great, and the fact that Stephen King is just playing with uh, like Greek mythology uh, is a lot of fun. And, and the lawnmower man, as creepy as he is, also is strangely charismatic. And having just watched uh, True Detective, I had, um, for those, those of you who are True Detective fans, you might know where I'm going with this. I'm not going to spoil anything um, for those of you who have not seen True Detective, although you should go out and, and, and see True Detective right now. Uh, but there's a particular character that I just kept thinking of the entire time as I was, I was uh, reading about the lawnmower man. It's a, it's a great, great, weird little story. I, I strongly recommend it. I, I didn't find any, necessarily any Stephen King-isms, and there's really not much for me to say about it other than it's weird and I liked it. So uh, I, I'm going to conclude our review of Night Shift today um, with, uh, with the bookends here. I started with Jerusalem's Lot, and I'm going to end with, uh, with One for the Road. And the reason I call them bookends is because Jerusalem's Lot is the story that takes place in Salem's Lot's past. And One for the Road is one that takes place uh, in the present after the events um, depicted within Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot. Wikipedia states, This tale is narrated by the first person um, by Booth, an elderly resident of a small town that neighbors Jerusalem's Lot, Maine. The main part of the story is set a couple years after the events of Salem's Lot. Booth describes a winter's night years ago when he and his friend, a bar owner named Herb Tookie Tooklander attempted to rescue the family of a motorist named Gerard Lumley, whose vehicle had become stranded in a ferocious blizzard. At first mildly contemptuous of Lumley for driving in such weather, both men are horrified when they realize that Lumley's vehicle is stranded in Jerusalem's lot. It is widely known that the lot has gone bad. 
but they still decide to drive out in Tookie's scout and attempt to save Lumley's family. Instead, they barely manage to save themselves from the man's wife and daughter, who have been turned into vampires, while Lumley himself ends up being vampirized by his wife. The story ends with Booth warning the reader that if they ever find themselves on the road through Salem's lot, they should keep on driving and not stop for any reasons. And I believe that the, the Wikipedia summary does enough justice uh, to it. Just reading it, it was giving me goosebumps. And I just think that it's, it's, it's just a nice little coda to, uh, to, uh, to Salem's lot and, and shows that, hey, you know, even though Mark and Ben returned to uh, Salem's lot, they might not have been able to, to fully vanquish the vampires. So it's, uh, you know, just a good, short, little vampire story that, that I appreciate, just so Stephen King can remind us that the horrors still exist in his world. So there's a number of other, uh, you know, good stories in here. I really like I Am the Doorway. I think that Night Surf um, is uh, a very notable short story due to the fact that it takes place in an alternate reality where the, the population of the world was also wiped out by a super flu known as Captain Trips, which will very, very shortly in Stephen King's chronological order of publication uh, return in The Stand. So, uh, but that, that, for all intents and purposes, concludes our review of, of Night Shift today. Um, but make sure you, you stick around for, for next week when I return with a... Oh, I'm sorry. So you might have you wondered, there, there's one story that I, I clearly did not cover here, and that was Children of the Corn. And the reason that I didn't record Children of the Corn is because I roped that into my review of... Children of the Corn, the the movie, which I would say is the most famous adaptation of the short stories in this particular short story collection. So I will next week I will review Children of the Corn, the movie, along with Children of the Corn, the short story, and do a, a compare and contrast uh, between the two. So make sure that you you come back next week for that. In the meantime, as always, please feel free to uh, like me on Facebook or uh, find me on Instagram. You can follow me at Twitter. Uh, all of the accounts are under Stephen Kingcast. So the Twitter handle is Stephen Kingcast. The Instagram account is Stephen Kingcast. You can find me on Facebook under Stephen Kingcast. Um, I do believe that the, the more we are talking about Stephen King, the larger presence he's going to have again in the, in the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, so feel free to write me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com uh, so that I can uh, share your thoughts with all of our fellow constant readers. And uh, so again, so make sure you, you come back again next week for the, the movie review of Children of the Corn. And until then, same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.